Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the Gospel according to Mark, the sixth chapter, where this morning we will look together at verses 7 through 13. Mark chapter 6, 7 through 13, and you can find that passage on page 986 in your Pew Bibles. I'm not going to be reviewing everything that we've been looking at over the last several weeks this morning. By now, I believe we all have a pretty good understanding that Mark is on a mission to get before us the revealed Christ. We've said it again and again and again. That is Mark's mission in this account of the gospel. And as we've witnessed many times over the last few months, he has done so in a masterful fashion. Now we are in chapter 6, and Mark has progressed his account, and he's been getting before us the early days of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as he began to teach in and around Capernaum. He had been healing the sick. He had been casting out demons, declaring that indeed he and he alone was the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah. And he had come to set right what had been broken in all of creation because of sin. Of course, the people were flocking to him in droves. Some of those people were driven by curiosity. Some by the notion that a man was working what appeared to be miracles. Some were there out of irritation. And some, out of their brokenness, were sincerely seeking relief from their suffering, compelled by God-given faith towards the truth that only he had what they truly needed, that only Jesus Christ could set things right, But many came, many heard. Moved with compassion, Jesus healed many of them. He was also teaching that indeed with him, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God had come. And as the crowds pushed in upon him, he began to teach them, revealing himself, the king of kings, to the eyes of faith while at the very same time further hardening those whose unbelief ruled their hearts and their minds. As we moved into chapter 6 last week, we found Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth. Here he would give one of the clearest revelations of himself to this point in his public ministry. And of course, his reputation had preceded him there. And as Jesus made his way into his hometown synagogue on the Sabbath day, the people of Nazareth were already gathering theirs, undoubtedly buzzing among one another, gossiping together about the news of his supposed supernatural works done in the outlying regions surrounding Nazareth. We saw that powerful scene. I recounted it as well from Luke's gospel as Jesus stood up and the scroll was handed to him and he read from the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Jesus closed the scroll and announced to all these familiar faces, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And in a strange bit of irony mingled with tragedy, the people who were most acquainted with Jesus Christ and his family showed forth such unbelief that Jesus himself marveled at their lack of faith. He, of course, rebuked them for their lack of understanding and for their own disregard of God's word. And the people of Nazareth being driven into a rage even further by their unbelief at this very clear revelation sought to then lead him to the brow of a cliff and throw him down from it and thus end his life. Once again, Mark shows the reader the real brokenness of this world because of sin. Sin and its devastating effects cannot be overstated here, can they? The people openly mocked him rather than revered him. They insulted him by saying things like, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? That's the way Mark records it. I mean, we know his family, his his brothers and sisters, they're here. We know them. Who is he to say these things to us? Perhaps you caught, caught the insult there in Mark in referring to him as Mary's son. I want to tell you, no one in the Jewish culture did that sort of thing. It was meant to be derogatory. Even if Joseph had died at this point, he would have been referred to as Joseph's son. But by pointing instead to Mary, they were, of course, casting even more shade on the very peculiar circumstances surrounding his birth. The gospel of Jesus Christ was clearly revealed. And in Nazareth, unbelief immediately surfaced, leading Jesus to do very little miraculous activity there. Mark tells us that he could not do miracles there and that he only healed a few sick people. We need to understand it was not that Jesus could not do miracles there as if his miracles were somehow empowered by the strength of the faith of the people. That's not what Mark is saying. Jesus did no miracles there because their already hardened hearts would have only grown harder. And even as the gospel proclaims judgment on these people, we still see Jesus exercising compassion towards those who so openly disregarded him, who wanted him silence, who ultimately wanted him dead. And beloved, I... I say all that because I want you to understand all of this is leading up to something. And perhaps you've already sensed that here in Mark. The kingdom of God has come. And Jesus was not off hiding in a corner. He was very clearly revealing himself to all of those who would gather to hear his words. And though it produced different results to the eyes of faith and to the eyes of the faithless, 
you can sense that as this is unfolding, there is indeed a conflict brewing. In fact, beginning even to boil over. And it's a conflict between two kingdoms. It's a clash between light and darkness. It's a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Or what we could also call the kingdom of self. Self Self-rule. Self-sufficiency. Self-righteousness. It's a kingdom as old as our first parents. When Satan tempted them to consider that they too could be like gods. That God was holding out on them. Because if they knew what he knew, what then? And as we continue to move ahead this morning further into this sixth chapter of Mark, we can see that indeed this is no small battle. This conflict is really the war of all wars. And we will see We will again see it escalating and moving further towards its climactic ending this morning. So with that in mind, I would invite you to join me and follow along in your Bibles as I read again from the holy, inerrant, and infallible Word of God, Mark chapter 6. I'll pick up with verse 7 and read through 13. Hear now the Word of our Lord. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two, gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to, make, to take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. He also said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, Shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of our Lord, and he always blessed the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have to come before your word. We pray, Father, that you would clear our hearts and our minds this morning of the many things in this life that seek our attention, the many distractions that are such a part of this life. We pray, Father, that we would give our full attention to your word and hearing your word through the power of your spirit, that we would be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Upon leaving Nazareth, Mark says that Jesus continued for really an unspecified period of time to teach in the surrounding villages in a sort of circuit. Teaching that the kingdom was indeed at hand. The kingdom of God had arrived. And the proof of that was beginning to sort of pile up all around them. Jesus had already been officially announced by the forerunner, 
John the Baptist, whose story we're going to pick up in a couple of weeks. He had defeated Satan in the wilderness and he had begun the work of redeeming the broken ones in this broken world. Those suffering the effects of the curse. And now, beginning here in verse 7, Mark describes yet another phase in the ministry of Christ. He says, And he called the twelve to himself. And he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them power over unclean spirits. Beloved, I want us to see that we can begin now to see the movement of the kingdom of God. Do you notice it here? Do you know what I mean by movement? It is progressing towards something. There is a change in trajectory, at least as you and I see it. Something new happens. The disciples, up to this point, had been but witnesses to that kingdom. They were following Jesus as he taught and he healed the sick and as he cast out demons in and around Capernaum. They had undoubtedly sat at his feet alongside of these massive crowds and they too had listened to his teaching, his teaching with a strange new authority. An authority unlike any authority the people knew. They had broken bread with him. Again and again, they had aided him in positioning himself with these massive crowds. They had traveled with Jesus by land and by sea. Yet their roles to this point had largely been passive. They had been, for the most part, observers, witnesses of the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Now something new happens. Jesus is commissioning them to go out into the world and to aid him by taking the message of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the surrounding areas. They were going to become active participants in the work of the kingdom of God and its king. They will work to extend and to expand his work. And I think we can safely say that this is still but just a part of Jesus' overall training of these 12 men. This is still very early in his mission. He's preparing them for ultimately that time following his death and resurrection, when Almighty God will build his church upon the very backs of these chosen men. They're being equipped for the work here in what we would call a sort of short-term mission. But it's a picture of what their lives will be. They will live to serve God in this very capacity. And Mark shows us how it is that Jesus prepares them for this work. He commands them to take nothing for their journey except a good walking stick. The sandals on their feet, the clothing they were already wearing, 
There were to be no money belts. There was to be no extra cash, no luggage, no food, not so much as even a change of clothes. These men were not going abroad to be tourists. They had a job to do. And they are to go in pairs and they are to preach the gospel, the message of the kingdom to the surrounding area. And they're going to learn something very valuable for anyone in the kingdom of God. And it's the first thing here that I would point out for you for our consideration this morning. In the kingdom of God, God himself will provide all that is needed to carry out the work that he gives us to do. Jesus is not advancing a kingdom where only the strong survive or even thrive for that matter. And we would do well to see that. He's not sending out his disciples so that he can sort of stand back like a good leader and watch and see who the hardest workers are. He's not looking for those whose gifts are in planning proper strategies for ultimate success. He's not looking for those whose work ethic will allow them to quickly rise up in the ranks and find their notice in the eyes of God. He's teaching his disciples something here that I think we all too often get tragically wrong in the Christian life. Doing his work for his glory and his success does not come from our good intentions. It does not come from our perceived abilities and strengths. It does not come from our sacrifices. It comes from faith in Him. And we need to see that. This is a critical lesson on living in the kingdom of God. Jesus is calling on His disciples here to trust Him for all of it. They are to take his message to his people, and he alone will bring about his success. He will commission them with the power and the authority of the kingdom. Everything that these messengers need will be provided for them by the king. There are a few things we need to think about here considering this. We always need to ask, what what are the implications of this then? Beloved in Christ, it is all about trusting God because that is what faith does. You understand? Not merely saying it, not merely confessing it, but living it. The Heidelberg Catechism, this isn't new to us, right? The Catechism itself describes faith in exactly this way, doesn't it? There is, of course, a knowing side of faith. And that's important. We must sit at the feet of Jesus and we must hear his word. In our day, we must avail ourselves to the means of grace. This is why we gather on the Lord's day. To sing his praises and to hear his word. We must know him. We must know about him. We must 
find him and search for him in his word. However, knowing is only part. It's not enough to know. Mark's already made that clear. The demons knew. It wasn't enough. Knowing's only part. It was a part that the disciples were undoubtedly acquainted with at this point. They had watched and listened and they were beginning to know things. But knowing must lead to something else. Knowledge that never moves from the head to the heart is just trivia. Knowing must lead to trusting. Not simply in word, but in deed. That's not a new concept, right? We saw Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He trusted God. Not paying just lip service, but living according to our knowing. And I want us to see this. This is how you and I prepare for the advancing of the kingdom. Jesus tells them they will have need of nothing. Everything needed will be provided. Their lodgings would be with his people. He would see to it that they were fed. They would be equipped to do the work. He will even provide the success. His father will assemble the crowds. There will be those who hear it and who repent and who believe and who run to the arms of Jesus Christ. There will be those for whom the gospel of Jesus Christ will truly be water for a thirsty soul. And the disciples will rejoice with them. They have been given by Jesus the authority to do and advance the work of the kingdom. They will be mending the broken things of this world. They will heal the sick and restore the weak. They will cast out demons in the name of their king. They will do the work of setting right what was so very wrong. And they will do it by the power of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not their talents. There are no individuals here. Do you notice that? (laughs) These are mere instruments in their Redeemer's hands. Jesus will not leave them to themselves. He sends them out in pairs. He knows that the work will not be easy. They will need one another for help and for encouragement along the way. They will not struggle in isolation from one another or in isolation from him. It's something we speak of here often, don't we? The kingdom of God does not belong to lone rangers. It's a community. It's not at all simply introspective individuals on individual spiritual quests. This is not what we find in the word of God. He is building his church. His body. There is no isolation in this kingdom. If we think that Christianity is just keeping to ourselves, keeping stiff upper lips, then I want to tell you this morning we've got it all wrong. If you are most comfortable when we all just handle our own stuff 
You deal with your problems. I deal with my problems. We're ignoring a very important principle here about this kingdom. God designed us to be together. You understand? He has created us to live in community. So if you find yourself feeling most pious when no one sees you sweat and you can just keep to yourself, then your kingdom lines up with the kingdom. But brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not this one. It's the one that's opposed to it. It's the kingdom of this world that lives for self. It's the kingdom of this world that sells each one for himself. No, God gives us the blessing of community. It speaks to the love of God for us, doesn't it? He equips us. He cares for us. He uses us. He makes us entirely dependent upon him. He does not allow for any of us to go it alone. And the kingdom advances. Right? The kingdom marches on to the glory of God. So beloved, I want to ask you this morning, do you long for this kingdom? Do you long to be a part of this kingdom community? The kingdom of God. The one that Jesus did reveal to us in his word. Do you long to be with God's people in God's place under God's rule? This is what he reveals. All lesser kingdoms will never stand up to that one. They fail. They fall and they go away. Only this kingdom comes with his commission. Only this kingdom advances. I mentioned to you earlier that we as Christians often get this wrong. We think that if we just somehow work harder than others, if we just spend more time in study, more time in the exercise of more rigid discipline, if we just set more rules and we get other people to live by them, if we just get more people involved, then God must bless our efforts. And again, I would say, that sounds like the wrong kingdom. It is the kingdom of this world that shamelessly promotes self with all of its hideous appendages. Self-righteousness, self-preservation, self-actualization, self-dependence. It's the world that asks you to find yourself and to develop your identity in worldly things. In this kingdom, we function as a body, as a community under our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where our identity exists. It's not in what we do. It's not in what we like or don't like. It's not in what we suppose that we are good at. We find our identity in this kingdom, in our king. And we function together for him and for his glory, for his advancement, for his mission. Beloved, do you see it? Perhaps the better question is, what are you going to do about it? Will you trust him 
for everything that he has called you to? Will you find your elusive contentment in the only thing that truly gives it? Life in Jesus Christ by faith. The second thing we need to consider here is the weightiness of this calling that's on display here in Mark. I'm sure you feel it, the seriousness of it, right? It is a seriousness that everyone feels as we live out our calling in this kingdom. Do you see it here in the text? This mission truly is a matter of life and death. You understand, these disciples are not just looking for a few good men here, are they? They're not looking to build their team as they see fit. They're not recruiting like we do in our businesses. They're not looking for the right talents and the right fits for a certain group. We can feel the desperation of this world for the gospel here. Just a quick aside here. This is one of those places where I'm reminded, and it's a pet peeve of mine, of just how unblinkingly we often adopt Christian buzzwords and phrases without thinking them through. I hate that kind of thing, and yet I do it all the time, right? We all do it. It can lead to more misunderstanding, more confusion. You know, we often speak of sharing the gospel, right? I promise I'm not trying to be cantankerous. I'm not even trying to be radical here by taking such an accepted, exalted phrase to task. But I I want us to think through what we say and why we say it in the kingdom of God. We share a meal. We might share a drink. We might share likes and hobbies. We share career ambitions. But there's a connotation that goes with that, right? We share things with people who want to be shared with. That's not the calling here. They're not to go out and preach the gospel to like-minded people who want to hear it. They are to preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere. They are to go about scattering the gospel like seed, knowing that there are two possible outcomes. Both are a part of the gospel. One will hear it and leap for joy at finding the inestimable treasure that is life in union with Jesus Christ, to be sure. However, another will be condemned by these very words. They are life to one, and they are death to another. There is hope in Jesus Christ, and there is condemnation in these very words to another. The gospel does both. And beloved, we need to feel the weight of that. One will receive you with joy. Another might run you out of town or even seek to do you harm. That was the experience of Jesus himself. They are to boldly declare the truth, knowing that the truth will do the work of invading grace as well as doing the work of pronouncing judgment. But we are to take the light of the gospel into the darkness. And if it's rejected, Jesus tells them, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. We are to boldly declare the gospel equipped with the authority of Jesus Christ 
whether it is welcomed or not. That's why I don't really like saying sharing. We're preaching the gospel. We're speaking the gospel. It's the truth. And it doesn't matter how you feel about it. We are to tell the good news regardless of how people feel about it. We are to trust that God will do the work of advancing his kingdom. He will bring the increase and he will bring the judgment. We are called to be faithful proclaimers of his good news and trust him. Beloved, do you trust him here? If you believe this is merely the work of professionals, then you're missing it. This is the call of the kingdom. You understand this is your service. You are not simply called to look the look. You are never called to simply put on a mask and trust others to do the work. You are called to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Hope that only exists for those who have received this good news by faith. If you've received this good news by faith, then how can you not tell it? It's the hope of the world. Jesus came as the restorer of all broken things, broken things that surround us. We came to undo, he came to undo the curse and to throw down the power of sin, death, and the devil. And you cannot keep that kind of news to yourself. This is not a live and let live situation. That's not the picture of Christianity. It's live and spread life or leave everything in death. It's that kind of situation. I want us to understand the world desperately needs Jesus and deliverance from the bondage of sin and death. Your friends and your families, your enemies, all of them desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you faithful to speak it? Do you see it here? If you do, in light of what Jesus is saying, what is it that holds you back? Are you afraid of your lack of eloquence? Read scripture. God gives us the words time and time again. He gives his spirit to quicken dead things and make them alive in Jesus Christ. Tragically, the one I hear more often that is, oh, I just don't have that knowledge. I don't don't know it like you know it, Steve. If I did, it would be different. It's not my strength, not my wheelhouse nonsense. Beloved, if you do not know it, then you have to ask yourself, why? Why don't you know it? Is it not available to you? Is the Bible not available to you? I highly doubt that that's the case. But if you think that's the case, see me after the service. I have a lot of Bibles. I'm happy to give you one. So you can leave with one more book and one less excuse. Can't be that the Bible's not available to us. It's never been more available than it is right now. Do you spend time in the revelation of God so graciously given to us in His Word? If you think that you cannot grasp it, see me. I will give of my time to teach you. So will others. Because this truly is the stuff of life and death. What could be more important than this? 
Jesus began to advance His kingdom here. And that advancement has never stopped. We're living in it now. Still marching on, which leads me to the final point from our text this morning. Mark has shown us that, the, that Jesus commissions his people to take the message of the kingdom of God to the world. He's made it very clear that he himself will provide everything that we could ever need to carry out that commission. He will give us the message. He will give us the platform. He will give us the audience. He will give us the increase and he will bring the judgment. He equips us to do it together in community. There are no isolated islands in this kingdom. He will give us one another for support and encouragement. And finally, brothers and sisters in Christ, we see here that nothing, nothing will thwart the advancement of this kingdom. Do you see it? Opposition does and will arise. And it will fall at the feet of this king and his glorious kingdom. And the Bible itself shows us that very thing over and over and over again. I'm going to sound like a broken record if you were in Sunday school this morning. But I can't stress it enough. Satan is ultimately a defeated foe awaiting his final judgment. He was there in opposition to God in the garden. And Eden. And though it looked as if all was lost, God promises that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the heel biting serpent. The kingdom marches on. He was there as unrighteous Cain took the life of righteous Abel, the one whom God had equipped to worship him properly in his kingdom. And though things looked very grim, God brought Seth and his kingdom continued on. The flood could not stop it. Abraham could not thwart the kingdom's progress as he asked God in his doubt to just give the blessing to the son of the bondwoman. Isaac was born in impossible circumstances and the kingdom marched on and advanced. Pharaoh could not stop it with all the collected power of Egypt. The sea could not slow its progress. Joseph's brothers, Potiphar's wife, even a famine could not stop it from advancing. Beloved, we've barely left the beginning of the Bible. Fast forward to the dawn of a new era. 400 years of silence following the unbelievable wickedness of God's people. No prophetic utterances in Israel. And the silence is broken by the announcement that the Son of God is born in a filthy stable in insignificant Bethlehem. In the kingdom of God advances to the glory of God. And we see it again and again and again until we get to the book of Revelation. Jesus is clearly seen as the triumphant lamb upon his throne 
a king and his kingdom in such glory that our tiny little minds can just barely begin to see it. Beloved, what's the point of it all? Why is it so important for us to know this king and this kingdom? Why must we see this faith and its object as it is revealed to us in this word? Because it's the very means of this kingdom advancing. Do you understand? It's driven by the promise of God. It's driven by the faithfulness of God. And it will advance. And you can wholeheartedly trust this God, not just in word, but with your life. He's given us countless rock-solid examples of his faithfulness. His mercies are indeed new every morning. He's given all things needed for you and I to rest in him. To be content in him. To rejoice in him. To be at peace in him. So my question is, beloved, are you any of these things? Is this your life? A life of trusting him. A life of understanding you're going to fail. And he's going to give you more grace. You understand the time of salvation is now. Jesus has come and he's thrown open the door to the Will you remain content to rule over your empire of dirt when this glorious kingdom, when this glorious king has called you to thrive and be at peace and rejoice and rest in him in the big sky kingdom of God? Jesus is indeed calling. Will you come home? Will you repent? And run to the everlasting loving embrace of this King. Beloved, it is always my prayer that you will and that you will spend this troubled life pointing your fellow sufferers to the only fount of every blessing, the King and his kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.